board. Okay, good morning, everybody. So happy to be back. We were Zoha to be in Israel for a few weeks, and it was really, really special, and hopefully it rejuvenated me. Get it? Jew? Yeah. It rejuvenated me, and uh, hopefully I can share with you some of the beautiful insights about Hanukkah that um, I gained. I got to go to some classes with my mentor and teacher, Dina Schoonmaker, who was in the neighborhood giving classes, and so that was very, very special. So talking about Hanukkah, which is coming up next week, it's no coincidence that the holiday of Hanukkah falls at the darkest time of the year, the darkest month of the year, the, the, the time of year when the days are the shortest. And our task during this time, and this is what I uh, want to get into after we go through a little bit of um, uh, more of the um, foundation of Hanukkah, is our task is to basically remove the darkness that is all around us in our own lives individually, and of course, as a people, our mission in this world is to remove the darkness of the world and bring out the light, which is exactly what the story of Hanukkah was all about. Now, Kislev is called the month of trust, the month in which we need to access these deeper levels of emuna and bitachon. And just as a review for everybody here, we know that Amuna means believing in God, believing that there is a superpower, a force, a transcendent being that created the world, that is a creator, the sustainer, and the supervisor of the world. But Bitachon is actually putting that belief into practice in the way that we respond to life situations and different things that come up for us, whether it's with relationships with other people, whether it's things that happen to us that are out of our control. The ways that we respond is where we flex our, our emuna muscle and put it into practice, which is called bitachon. The Rambam describes emuna as a tree and, and bitachon as a fruit-bearing tree. So the idea is, is that a person can have emuna, they can believe in God, but have absolutely no bitachon, meaning they don't really believe that Hashem has acted in their life or that Hashem is someone that they can give up control to and trust to do good for them. Um, and of course, bitachon, a person cannot possibly have bitachon without first having emuna, believing, number one, that there is a God. So... The two of them obviously go together, but again, a person can live their whole life as a believing religious Jew, doing all kinds of external actions, but have very little bitachon, very little trust, and really living with the idea that God is right there beside him or her. Okay, so um, the first thing we want to talk about is the idea, again, that... Um, Sorry, one sec. That we find at the very beginning of the of Bereshi an allusion to Hanukkah, and actually an allusion to the four exiles that the Jewish people are going to go through. 
So this is based on a book by Rabbi Emmanuel Bernstein, and he talks about the Torah's earliest reference, references to the four exiles that are right there at the very beginning of creation. We know that Bereshit, the word Bereshit, teaches us that it was for the sake of Torah that Hashem created the entire world, Rashi tells us. And the word Reshit also refers to the Jewish people, that it was for the sake of the people who would accept God's Torah that the entire world was created. So hidden in the words of the Torah, the simple meaning, the in the beginning God created, we have deeper meanings in terms of what will happen and occur as history goes forward that are imprinted here at the very beginning, kind of like the DNA of what will occur in the future. So here we see the four exiles that the Jewish people are going to go through in the words, the Ha'aretz Hayita Tohu Vavohu, the Choshech Al Pene Tahom. It's the second verse in Bereshi. The Ruach Elokim Rachefet Al Pene Hamayim. I will translate. So in the beginning, when God created the heaven and the earth, the earth was, and this is the four exiles, is referring to the four exiles. The earth was astonishingly empty. Okay? It was desolate. This refers to the Babylonian exile that we suffered under Nebuchadnezzar. It was empty. This refers to the Persian exile under um, Ahasuerus, right? And, and then it says, um, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And this is what we want to focus on today because darkness refers to the Greek exile. It refers to the exile that was the Hanukkah story. Now, just for everybody's information, the last exile, which is the one we're in right now, is called the surface of the deep. And this is the final exile, which our rabbis tell us, whose end cannot be fathomed. Okay, and the source for this is Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish and Bereshis Rabbah. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, what is it about Greece that, or the Greek exile that was characterized by darkness? Because after all, isn't all exile darkness? Wouldn't we call the Jewish people being either thrown out of their land or dislocated not just physically, but spiritually in terms of their attachment to Hashem, darkness. So why is it that specifically Greece, which we usually consider to be a, you know, a, uh, a people that gave a lot of light, so to speak, to the world, right? They were foremost in the sciences, in the music, in architecture. People traveled to Greece to see the Parthenon. They were foremost in theater and poetry and all kinds of things that we enjoy today and which the Jewish people even appreciated. So why would we call, why would we associate the Greek exile and this whole period of when the Jewish people were actually in their land? This is the only exile that took place in our land. Why would we call it darkness? So again, there's two elements to exile. There's geography, right? whether or not we're attached or detached to the land of Israel. And then there's a spiritual type of exile, whether we're attached or detached to the divine presence. 
So the Greek exile was not a geographic exile because it took place in the land of Israel. But what it was, was a spiritual exile. An exile that sought to detach us from our connection to Hashem. And how did the Greeks do this? They did this by attacking our greatest strength, but also, as we've said in other classes, our greatest strength is always potentially our greatest weakness. They attacked our faculty of wisdom. Okay? The faculty of wisdom, which we derive our wisdom from the teachings of the Torah, but the wisdom that the Greeks were offering to the world, while not in contradiction to the Torah, challenge the idea of a higher being of a of anything that exists higher than human reason and logic the greeks believed that if you couldn't see it and measure it and scientifically understand it then it did not exist and this is where the war between the greeks and the jews took place on the level of truth what is true and the Greeks maintained that man's intellect is the final arbiter of truth. So the Greeks saw the Torah as detached from Hashem. As I've heard actually somebody once tell me, you know, the Torah is great literature, but nothing more. The Greeks saw it as a tremendous source of wisdom, but not coming from any place divine. And because of this, it was considered a terrible day of darkness um, for that reason. When, for example, the Torah was translated into Greece, into Greek. Now, there had been a time in history when the Torah had been translated into 70 languages when the Jews were going into Israel, because the idea that the Torah should be known to all humanity and mankind is something that we want. But the problem when, with this time period, when the Greeks uh, translated it, or wanted the Torah translated it into Greece, was because they wanted to diminish the idea of Torah being a holy and sacred book, and rather just a book of wisdom. Okay, so that's just a little bit of, um, of history in terms of the Chumash and this exile it, at the very beginning. Um, foretold as darkness. Okay. Another thing that I want to speak about is the whole idea of creation beginning with tohu vavohu. Tohu vavohu means emptiness and void. It was very interesting. I was teaching a one of my students who actually comes from Monaco, who discovered she was Jewish at the age of 10 or 11. To, and um, anyway, she's relearning. She's learning all about her roots and her heritage and we are discussing together and I was telling her a little bit about the beginning of the Torah that why the question was why does the Torah begin with emptiness and void why doesn't God just go straight to Yehi or and there was light and the answer from Rabbi Yosef Soloveitchik that he gave which I really love is that he said that the fact that the world traveled from emptiness and void and then the light was revealed, was going to be a, um, an indication for the, to the Jewish people whose history would over and over again plunge them into a place 
of emptiness and void and chaos and confusion. And, and the Jewish people over and over again would emerge from this place of tohu vavohu, of chaos and darkness. And they would emerge over and ever, over again towards the light. So this is why the world begins in such a negative, so to speak, empty, desolate place. But just as Jews, we begin the, the new day at nighttime, right? We start looking towards the day in the nighttime. And we always travel from the night towards the day. So too, at the beginning of creation, God created the world as a dark place that travels towards the light. Again, mimicking the journey of the Jewish people that will occur over and over again throughout history. Anyway, I know that this girl didn't know Hebrew, but I anyway threw in the word that this is called tohu vavohu. So she ended up teaching me something which I found fascinating. She said, oh, we say that in French. I said, what? She said, yes, we say said tohu vohu. I said, are you kidding me? She said, no, it's a French expression. When we want to say that something's confused or chaotic, or it's a balagan, as we say in Hebrew, she says, we say, setohu bohu. So I said, is that like a common expression? She said, well, it's a little old fashioned. It's from my parents' age, but that's how we describe chaos. Anyway, I was just amazed how we can see how the Hebrew language and concepts from the Torah are, are embedded in different languages in the world. Okay, so again, the idea is that the Jewish people are always traveling from the darkness towards the light. Because of that, we're always compared to the cycle of the moon. The idea that just as the moon looks as if it's going to disappear in the blackness of the sky, it always comes back and reappears again to its full brightness. Again, this is a an allusion to the Jewish people who will go through darkness over and over again and always reach for the light. Even in the womb, every person begins in darkness. And we're told that we have a light over our head. And this light, this idea of the light over our head is that we're taught the entire Torah and then what happens is we forget it when we come into this world, the Medrash tells us. And the purpose of our existence in this world is to remember that light, to remember that knowledge and wisdom of the Torah that we once knew, that inner wisdom, and try to regain it and try to bring it back. Again, an allusion to the idea of darkness and always moving towards the light. Interestingly, by the way, the word light, which occurs for the first time in the Torah, just a few verses after this, is the 25th word of the Torah, an allusion the rabbis teach us to the holiday of Hanukkah, which will, of course, had not yet happened, right, for many, many, th for thousands of years, for at least a thousand years. And this, this 30, this 25th word or is an allusion to the 25th day of Kislev, where, of course, we call it the Festival of Lights in English, and, of course, the Miracle of the Menorah. So another place where we have an allusion to this light of Hanukkah is at the very beginning 
of Bereshit also with this new light that is created. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated between the light and the darkness. So this is an allusion to the idea that this first light that was created was not the light that we enjoy today, is not the light that we get from the sun. The sun was created on the fourth day of creation, but rather this light was a light that God said had to be hidden because it was so powerful that he was afraid that the wicked of the world would misuse it. And so we're told by Rashi that God hides this light away for the righteous in the world to come. And this light is called the Or Haganuz, the hidden light. God always associates himself with light. Even in this Pasuk, it's noted, it says, God separated between the light and the darkness. In other words, it doesn't say God separated between the light and God separated between the darkness. God's only mentioned at the beginning where there is light because God associates himself with light, spirituality, transformation, transcendence, overcoming obstacles, moving towards the light. This is where God can be found, not in the darkness. At the beginning of creation, we're told that this light was not hidden away until the last day of the seven days of creation. So Adam Harishon, the first human being, was able to enjoy this light for 36 hours. Okay? Now remember, Adam was created on the sixth day, in the middle of the day. And only three hours after his creation, he sinned in the Garden of Eden together with Chava. And of course, their punishment was that they were going to be expelled from the garden. But Hashem gave them extra time, if you like. Hashem allowed them to stay in the garden, enjoying this primal light, again, for 36 hours. And the number 36 is crucial. Okay? He allowed them to go through a Shabbos, which is a day of forgiveness. Shabbat is always associated with forgiveness and teshuva. And it was only after Shabbat ended that Adam and Chava are kicked out of the garden. And of course, this primal light that was hidden away for the tzaddikim in the next world is no longer available to him. That's why Adam, before he sins, is described as a being that could see from one end of the earth to the other, which basically, even though we don't know exactly what that means, was telling us that he was enjoying this incredible light, this light that would not be able to even be tolerated by people who could not handle it, so to speak, who, who, who lost that level. Adam Harishon himself, and so it had to be hidden. Now, another place it was hidden was in the Torah. We say that when we learn Torah, we release the light into the world. Of course, this light was also hidden in Shabbat. But one of the main allusions to where this light can be found is in the lights of the menorah that we kindle on Hanukkah. We light 36 candles, right? Every day we add another one. And if you add it all up, by the time the eight days are over, we've lit 36 candles. Again, an allusion to the 36 hours of light that was in the world, hidden away, 
This, by the way, is why halachically we are not allowed to use the lights of the menorah, right? Shabbos lights, the lights that you light on Shabbos is actually a mitzvah to use them. I, I especially, after I light my candles, I'll read a prayer or something and I'll use the lights of the Shabbat candles, even if there's light all around me in my living room, okay? I've been at people's homes where they literally only eat their Shabbat meals by the light of the candles in Israel, um, you know, because they want to really use the candles of Shabbat because it's a mitzvah to use them. Hanukkah lights? No. You're not allowed to sing Ma'osur with your bencher or your sitter using the light of the candle because they're so sacred that we actually have a mitzvah after we light them to just sit and gaze at them, to just look at, into the light. And it's as if we are privy to that or news, that hidden light that was there at the beginning of creation. They're now inside the menorah and inside those lights. Okay. Um, interestingly, the month, Kislev, that Hanukkah is celebrated in, obviously we know that every month has, whichever holidays come out in it, inform us, are connected to the name of the month. So Kislev is actually from the word kis, which means a pocket or it actually means to cover, right? Because if you put something in your pocket, it's hidden. And lev are the letters lamed and vav, 36. Okay, lamed is 30, vav is six. So Kislev is telling us this is the month of the 36 that is hidden, the covered over 36. The 36 hours that were hidden at the beginning of creation are now being revealed on this holiday of Hanukkah. We've pro you've probably heard about the 36 hidden Sadiqim that are in every generation. There's an idea that there are 36 hidden Sadiqim that keep the world going. Because of them, the world continues to exist. I went to a class by Robinson Shira Smiles and she said something I'd never heard before. She said, you know, the 36 are always changing. It's not just 36 people that, you know, were in the world at some time or another. She said each one of us could be one of the 36 at any given moment, depending on, you know, what kind of act we just did or what the quality of our mitzvah or, you know, even a thought, a good thought that at any moment there are 36 hidden Siddiqui, but they're always changing who those people are. So I thought that was very optimistic and, and a beautiful way of explaining how each one of us can rise to the level of a 30, one of the 36 hidden Siddiquim. Okay, so another thing I wanted to talk about is the idea that when Adam was in the garden and after he had sinned, we have to remember that Adam Arishon had never seen nighttime. So as the sun started to set, after he realized, he and Chava realized the severity of what they had done, he thought that he had destroyed the world, that the world was ending, and that this was the end of everything. Now, what happens is we have a Tehillim, Sadiq Bet, uh, Tehillim 92, which is ascribed to 
being written by Adam Harisham. We know that most of the Tehillim were written by King David, but there are different Tehillim that were told were written by others. I think there's a, an idea that maybe one or two were written by Moshe, but this one, Psalm 92, was written by Adam Harishon as he saw the sun setting and thought that this was the end of the world. And when the next morning came up, and of course it was Shabbos, he composed this shear that we sing on Shabbos in our Siddur, I think at least twice in the davening. Sometimes at the end, Mizmor Shir the Yom HaShabbat, a song for the Sabbath day, and sometimes in the very middle of the Pesuke de Zimra, of all of the um, um, prayers that we say before Shemona Esrei. And it goes like this, and I'm just going to, we're just going to do a couple of verses that relate to our topic of Emuna and Bitachon, which is, which is, as we said, the, the, um, the main emphasis of this month, of the darkest month, is to ignite our amuna and bitachon to remove the darkness by fortifying ourselves and moving ourselves into the light. So what does Adam Rishon say? He says, Tov lehodot Hashem. It's good to thank Hashem. Ulezamer l'shimcha elyon. And to sing praise to your name, Most High. So the very first thing we learn here from this psalm and how it connects to Hanukkah is the main mitzvah of Hanukkah is Hallel Ulahadot et Shimcha Hagadol. That's what we say when we insert into the Shemona Esrei, the Al Hanisim, the Al Apurkan, because of all the miracles you did for us. And we go through the war against the Greeks, how the few were able to be victorious over the many. We end with the idea that we found this little flask of oil and it was able to be lit. We had this open miracle, right? Of the of the of the light lasting for eight days. But the way that the whole prayer ends is what is the purpose of all of this? Why do we still celebrate this holiday? Sorry, to thank and to praise your holy name. This is exactly what Adam Arishon was doing as the light was came back into the world on Shabbos morning, and he realized that Hashem was giving not only him, but all of mankind another chance, an opportunity to redeem themselves, an opportunity, again, to travel through the darkness, which is a part of each person's reality, and rediscover the light. And what does he teach us here? He says, Lahagi baboker chastecha. We should relate your kindliness in the morning. And a beautiful word I heard on that beautiful Dvar Torah many, many years ago is that in the morning, when things are clear, when life is going good, when we feel happy, when we see all the kindnesses in our lives that Hashem does for us, in the morning, it's easy to talk about your kindness, Hashem. It's easy to be grateful. It's easy to notice and know that you're there. But as it goes on, and to have emuna in the night, to try and be faithful and true to you in the night when there's confusion, when there's tohu vohu, 
as it says in French, right? Tohu bohu. When there's darkness, when we can't see, that's when we need to plug in our emuna, and even more so the flip side of our emuna, which is bitachon, that everything is going to be good and that everything is good, even while we are in the night. So I just want to quote Rabbi Jonathan Sachs again. His neshama should have an aliyah who defines faith in the most beautiful way. And it goes together with this idea of emunatecha balelo, that at nighttime we have to have emuna. And this is what has kept the Jewish people going throughout time. Faith is the ability, says Rabbi Sachs, to live with delay without losing trust in the promise, to experience disappointment without losing hope, to know that the road between the real and the ideal is long and yet be willing to take the journey. So this is his definition of Imuna. One I want to speak about in the time that we have left is again, the idea of putting our Imuna into practice with Bitachon, and relating it to the holiday of Hanukkah, which is coming up very, very soon. So what is bitachon? Bitachon is not, the Chazon Ish says, believing that everything will turn out the way you want. Okay? The Chazon Ish, who wrote a book called Emuna the Bitachon, he's very clear. Give me one sec. He's very clear about the idea that just because a person believes and trusts in Hashem, it doesn't mean that things will turn out the way we want them to. Okay? The best story I ever heard was from Rabbi Pesach Krohn, who when he was a young teenager, unfortunately his father was very sick and in the hospital, and he was in the company of some very great rabbis, and they asked him how his father was doing. And Rabbi Pesach Kron said, you know, he's not doing so well, but I have bitachon that Hashem is going to make him better. To which the rabbis corrected the young boy and said, that's not bitachon. Bitachon, it means that whatever Hashem does, whatever will be the outcome, that is good. Okay, it may not feel good. Again, when somebody dies, we don't say it's good. We say, Baruch Dayan Ha'emet, blessed is the true judge, because even if we might cerebrally understand that everything Hashem does is good, our feelings don't necessarily go together with that. But we know that Hashem, you are the true judge. You are the one who has seized everything from the beginning of time until the end, all in one moment. You are above time. You know what needs to happen for the good of the world. And so we just bow our heads, so to speak, in emuna, in belief and trust that you are taking us all on this journey to a better world. And so, you know, sometimes we have to do that. But what 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 the Chazan Ish was saying, that bitachon doesn't mean that everything's going to go the way we want it to. And that bitachon means that everything Hashem does is good, even if it doesn't feel good. Now, there's another rabbi, famous rabbi, the Lashem, who seems to be in a contrary or opposite 
uh, position when it comes to bitachon. The Lashem says that the more you trust in Hashem, the more he will do for you what you want, what you need. He will give you what you want. Okay, so this is also a understanding of bitachon that is, you know, would seem to be the natural way to think of bitachon. And many of the psuki, many of the verses in our prayers tell us that the more you depend on God, the more you trust in him, the more good you will see in your life. David HaMelech explains that to the degree that a person trusts in Hashem, it's to that degree that Hashem can do for him or grant him what he wants. The idea that we've mentioned before is that David HaMelech describes our relationship with God as a shadow. Hashem tzilcha, Hashem is your shadow. That the, when you move a certain way, Hashem moves in kind. When you step closer to Hashem, he steps closer to you. When you place your reliance on Hashem only, then Hashem, who is the source of everything, has the power to be able to help you in a way that if you put your trust in the doctors or in your money or in your intelligence or in your job security, right, which is finite and which is based on limitation, then it's only to the degree that those things can help you that you will be helped. But if you put your trust and reliance on the source of everything, then obviously the help can come from a place much higher and much greater. One of the allusions to this in the Hanukkah story is with the Maccabees. How could they even imagine rising up against the powerful Greeks who were the superpower of the day? Even if it was a war of darkness over, sorry, light prevailing over the darkness, and of course, light representing Hashem, the nerve to start up this tiny little band of Kohanim, of priests, right? They weren't in the gym every day doing push-ups and sit-ups and planning strategies of war. How could they even begin to do this? Because again, the idea of bitachon is that the more helpless you feel, the more helpful Hashem can be. Again, the more helpless one feels, often Hashem pushes us, us down at different trials in our lives to a place of complete and utter helplessness in order that we learn to put our trust and our reliance only in Him. And throughout Jewish history, again, we Jews have been plunged into darkness over and over again and rise to the light only by putting our trust and reliance completely in Hashem. Another example we have of this is Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. When the Jews came out of Egypt, we're told that it wasn't until they cried out by Yitzhak Hashem from the depths of their soul, they'd had it. They really wanted to leave. They understood there was nothing and no one who could help them, not even Moshe, who was failing over and over again. Even the plagues did not change Paro's mind until the very end. And it was only by Yitzhak when they called out from the depths of their emotions that Hashem basically was able to split the sea, open the waters, bring the light, and allow them to leave. So again, it's only when we feel helpless 
that we can rely on Hashem and that's when Hashem can be the most helpful. Now we don't have to wait for that to happen. And we don't, that's not, that's not the default. That's a default position, right? We have to be looking for and noticing all the good that Hashem does to us. Another idea of this idea of seeing Hashem when things are light through gratitude is the idea too, that when a person is grateful, we know this, then you just want to give them more, right? The kid who's the most grateful, who says thanks so much for every present and everything you do for them with heartfelt sincerity, that's the kid you want to do more for. The analogy of this is like a child sucking from his mother, from, from his mother's breast. And we know the principle biologically that the more the child sucks, the more milk there is the more milk there is created. So the idea again, too, is the more we rely on Hashem and the more we recognize that all the blessings are coming from Hashem and we say thank you and we admit, the same source of the word thanks is admit. The hodot means to admit that without you, Hashem, we are nothing, right? Every breath we take is from you. So the more we do this, the more we connect to Hashem, the more we recognize that everything we have is from Hashem. And that allows Hashem to give more milk, to give more blessings, to change things up, to lead us to the light, to bring miracles into our life. Okay. Um, and that's what the Maccabees did. They just went for it. They just realized that they were in a place where they couldn't do anything but revolt against this darkness, and Hashem, of course, opened up things for them. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit uh, about the five levels of bitachon now, based on a, a, a book by Rav Shaya Cohen called The Bitachon Reader, and uh, something that I learned while I was in Israel um, in this little vod that Dina Schoonmaker, Revison Dina Schoonmaker runs. And I'm just going to focus on the first one today, and then we'll continue next week, God willing, with the rest of them. But the first level of bitachon is understanding ein mikra lefana. There are no coincidences. There is no such thing as coincidence. And a person with bitachon lives with this belief. In Hebrew, the word for coincidence is the word mikra, mem, kuf. Reish, hey, I used to have that printed out, but let's see if I can write it here. For those of you, okay. Mem kuf reish hey means a happening, happenstance, coincidence. So I don't know where I read it, but if you rearrange the letters of this word mikra, you get the words rock, reish kuf, mem, me, and the hay stands for God, only from God. There's no such thing as coincidence. There's nothing that happens outside of God's purview, if you like. There's no such thing. Anything that happens to us from the simplest cold that we get to, God forbid, getting COVID is not happenstance, is not just random. Everything in our lives is with purpose. There are no such thing as coincidences. Now, why do we have such a hard time living with this? 
because basically we are control freaks and we don't like to see things as out of our control. So even though we might even believe that there's no such thing as coincidence, the difficulty is that even if we know this, we still believe in causality. We still say to ourselves all the time, if only I would have done A, then B never would have happened, right? If only I had sent my kid to that, uh, you know, a different school, then he would have turned out so much differently. If only I would have, you know, put money in the stock market at this time, then my life would have been completely different. I'd be laughing now in terms of my bank account. So we spend a lot of our time thinking that we can control things and thinking, and, and the reason that we do this as human beings is to remove anxiety, okay? Feeling like we can be in control removes anxiety. Um, and, you know, seeing causality in everything is what gives us a sense of control. But the whole concept of finding the darkness or removing darkness is the idea of realizing that Hashem is behind everything. Now, you know, we had a, just an incredible example in the last few years. You can't get a better example than COVID of people feeling completely like helpless, of people trying to understand it in an intellectual way, you know, of people trying to avoid it by doing whatever the latest thing is to avoid it. And yet so many of the different ideas, scientific ideas, research ideas during those three years of COVID just never made sense. They were found, they were unfounded, you know, in just a little bit of time. And the idea was that people were trying to gain a sense of control by understanding it and not seeing Hashem behind it, not seeing the fact, as we used to say during COVID, you know, we're all in the same storm, but we're in a different boat. Each one of us is in the boat that we need to be in. And that's true of everything from getting the common cold to something as, as, as something as a global pandemic. You know, a person can spend their whole life thinking that if I just did this, if I just did do that, then I can avoid this, then I can, you know, um, acquire that. And again, it's a natural human way to deal with anxiety and feeling like you're not in control. But what Hanukkah is all about is to realize that we have to see Hashem behind everything. That everything that happens to us and in the world at large is coming to us from Hashem. And that is the light in the darkness. We need control to manage our own anxiety. But we have to realize that a lot of that need for control is relieved when we have more bitachon. When we recognize that there's nothing that Hashem is not behind. So it's interesting, one of the examples that Dina brought down is that trauma victims, people who've gone through some kind of trauma become very black and white thinkers. Because they haven't had control over they, their lives, they try to control their environment. They like to see everything in very black and white. Good guys, bad guys, 
And this gives them a sense of control. As a matter of fact, the data shows that people who had uh, trauma, and this study goes back a few years, have more racial prejudice um, against other people. They like to see things in very black and white ways. And subtlety, subtle type of thinking does not work for people who think this way. But what Dina was saying is that to a certain degree, we're all like that. We all have this desire for control that makes us want to explain everything in terms of science, in terms of data, in terms of facts. And this was basically the darkness that Greece gave us, which is that there's nothing higher than science, than human intellect, than the rational, than cause and effect. And this is what was, this is what the Jewish people were fighting at that time, the Jews who were uh, connected to Torah. Because the desire to control things and to explain everything away in terms of data is a way of getting rid of Hashem. Now, it's interesting that Hashem wants to hide himself. Hashem doesn't want to be seen clearly, right? There's a principle in Judaism that Hashem doesn't like to do miracles. He does them at certain times throughout Jewish history, but it's not his first go-to, if you like. He doesn't like to do miracles. He doesn't like to come out, you know, and 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 make us see him so clearly. Rather, Hashem wants to hide himself, right? As I've said in other classes, the word olam, when we say adon olam, the word olam is the same root as the word he'elam, which means to hide. The idea is that God created nature. He created teva. He created the physical world, but he hides himself behind it. And the job of the Jewish people and of mankind in general is to seek God out, to look for him behind, not attribute everything to causality, right? And this is the challenge. This is the challenge. We like to have principles and theories and, and uh, proofs that make me feel that I can control the outcome. I remember when I was going through a very difficult time in my life, an illness, and somebody quoted to me the Chafetz Chaim, who basically gives this idea of what the difference is between thinking you can figure everything out rationally and having emuna and bitachon and Hashem, which is, they said that the Chafetz Chaim said there are two kinds of people in the world, those who are healthy and those who live a long life. Okay, you have to think about that for a minute, right? We all know those people who ate perfectly and exercised all the time and, you know, followed all the rules of good health. And then they dropped dead at the age of 40 playing ball with their 10-year-old kid. God forbid. And then we know people who were born sickly from the moment they were born. Maybe they were premature baby that everybody said, is not going to make it? And they went on to live till they were 95, right? A long life. So we like to think we can figure things out. And of course, we shouldn't ignore, you know, what's considered normal efforts to make, but we shouldn't think that it's our efforts that bring the results. Whether we think, you know, if we had only done this differently, everything would be different. 
we should always recognize that there's something greater that's always working behind the scenes. And we fought when we fall into the trap of only um, understanding things in terms of our minds, in terms of Teva, we are in darkness. And the more we try to find Hashem behind the Teva in our own lives, the more we travel out of the darkness, removing the darkness by finding Hashem behind everything that happens to us, by recognizing that there are no coincidences. This is how we bring back that Or Haganuz, that, that special light, that 36 hours of light that was in the world. This is how we in our own lives and for the world at large, bring that this light back into the world. So as we travel towards the holiday of Hanukkah in this, the darkest month of Kislev, the covered over 36, and we reignite the 36 hours and bring them into the world again at this time of year. Let's all of us, God willing, be blessed with being able to remove the darkness in our own lives, in our own vision, take off the, the spot that's in front of our glasses, that's making us see things in, in, in a way that the Greeks saw them with limitations and finiteness and only using the rational and transcend that and find and go towards the light of Torah and mitzvos and Hashem. Thank you so much for listening.